Welcome listeners to a new installment of the 2020 season of Praxis. I'm back from a week off and very excited to share this episode with you. If you didn't notice I was gone, it probably means you aren't subscribed, which is embarrassing for everyone, but easy to remedy. You can do that and find past episodes, transcripts, and more at praxisradio.com slash subscribe. While the season so far has followed the trajectory of a radio show road trip I took five years ago through new interviews taken this past summer, today's interview is more recent, recorded just a couple of weeks ago in mid-November. The two weeks before the break were rooted in the Bay Area, where I had also hoped to connect with Mickey Huff, the director of Project Censored, in person. We were able to do a short interview by phone, and I am sorry to report that my setup in 2015 was not up to snuff. The audio quality is, well, kind of bad. It will not be lost to the ages, though. I do plan to transcribe that interview and publish it on the site, as well as adding it to the show notes of this episode when it's ready. I reached out to Project Censor's associate director, Andy Lee Roth, who you'll hear from today, not for this season, but to let him know about the archive of the radio iteration of the show on which he was a guest in 2013. I realized when he messaged me back about the new State of the Free Press 2021 yearbook that talking with him about this project again would be a great fit to revisit, even though we didn't meet on the road and he lives pretty close in my home state of Washington. The backdrop of everything we do as organizers or activists or artists lives in the sphere of media, and as existing corporate media structures mutate and metastasize through the power of big tech, spread through the incomprehensibly vast vectors of social media, I think it's well worth a detour to go deeper into the news media. So without further ranting from me, here is my November 17th interview with Andy Lee Roth of Project Censored. Yeah, I guess just diving in, you're kind of a unique case on this series because... This whole podcast series, it's an iteration of a radio show that I did for years, which you were on, actually, back in 2013. So you're unique in that way, too. But uh, this is all revisiting a road trip that I took in the summer of 2015, which was quite a time. And I was trying to get back in touch with folks I met and interviewed then. And I talked with not you, but your co-director of Project Censored, where you also are, Mickey Huff. And yeah, when he and I talked, you know, it was a similar time, but I feel like now is more so. Like all the seeds of the media landscape that we're in now, which is so extreme and unhinged, were really like falling on fertile ground in the summer of 2015. Would you agree with that? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's the whole time I've been involved with the project, Project Censored, which is since about 2005, 2006, like there's, it's just nonstop. It's, there's always something going on. And so, you know, on one hand it's relentless. On the other hand, like if you're interested in these things, you're, there's, you know, the proverbial never a dull moment. I think that the pressures that media organizations, that news organizations are under are as intense today as ever. The importance of the news media for setting an agenda and framing how the public understands the issues that society, American society face are as high stakes as they've ever been. And therefore the need for the public to be media literate, to have a critical media literacy is uh, as, as great as it's ever been. And again, all that I realize sounds a little bit self-serving since you know I, my training is as a sociologist of news media and the organization I work for, Project Censored, takes as its mission 
to inform people about the importance of truly independent journalism for democracy. But I, I, I believe in my heart that those things are all true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I realized that in the rush to explain the context, I did not introduce you. Would you like to introduce yourself? <laughs> you gave a little context for who you are, but just to share with listeners who we're hearing yeah, from. Yeah, I'm, An- I'm Andy Roth, and I think I'm newsworthy because I'm the associate director of an organization called Project Censored that has been around since 1976, operating as kind of one of the country's very first pioneering news watchdog organizations and continuing on into the you know this new millennium and new decade as an organization that not only tries to inform the public about important news stories that are often underreported, ignored or distorted by the corporate press, but also a major aim of the project and something that I'm very proud of is the hands-on direct education and critical media literacy that Project Censored provides to undergraduate students all across the United States. So as, as we talk more today, Taylor, we'll be probably talking about some of the stories and themes that are in the project's newest yearbook, State of the Free Press 2021. And I'll just point out now, and I may try to reiterate in some more detail later, how many, how much of this book is originally researched and vetted by undergraduate students at a number of college and university campuses across the country where Project Censored's work is being done. So yeah, my training is as a sociologist. I did my doctorate in sociology at UCLA where I became interested in kind of the interactional factors that shape the production of news stories, which is a scholarly way of saying that all news is produced by human beings interacting with one another. And if we understand those processes, those those processes of human interaction, between professional reporters or maybe not professional reporters, between people who act as journalists and their sources, then we get a better picture of the world we live in because we understand how the news that we receive about it has been produced. Hmm. That's a good lens to bring, and I'm sure we will come back there. I think somewhere to start, maybe this has changed in the recent years because people's awareness of the machinations of the news media I think has increased for for good or ill uh, during the Trump years. But Project Censored, that's been the name. Can you talk about what y'all mean by censorship in that news landscape? Are we talking about hard censorship? Are we talking about other forms? Yeah, I think we we at Project Censored, so that name is a name that Carl Jensen, the founder, gave the project. And Carl had a had a as someone who came from a background not only in advertising, but also in journalism, and eventually found his way to becoming a professor of sociology and communication. Carl had a flair for the dramatic, and so Project Censored immediately raises questions. What's being censored? Who's censoring? Is there really censorship in the United States? Right? Mm -hmm. You know, um, and and so I think we've had an evolving, the project has had an, an evolving definition of what counts as censorship in the United States, and, you know, I won't try to rehash a whole sociology of, of news history of censorship here, but we can run through a few elements to, to kind of cover the breadth of what we need to understand censorship as a concept, especially news censorship in the 21st century. 
So I'd start with, of course, what everyone who's taken a kind of and taken and remembers their civics classes. The First Amendment, of course, protects against governmental censorship. And the United States, you know, we can come back and we maybe want to talk more about governmental censorship in a moment. But I think if we're talking about in the 21st century, the really new development is the the consolidation and continued reinforcement of corporate power. Uh, which has been multiplied by online technologies in so many ways, so that a lot of what we're talking about now, and I think where the cutting edge of kind of these issues is today, is what you could think of as algorithmic censorship. But before talking about that, let me back up a bit to the 1950s very quickly and just talk a little bit about one of the most famous studies of, of news judgment, a study done by a researcher named David Manning White, who in 1950 published a study of what he at the time called gatekeeping, the idea that the editor of the local newspaper was a kind of gatekeeper who controlled the gate and let some information pass through as news that would be published in the, in the, the Midwestern paper where this editor worked, and other information would be rejected as not being newsworthy. And David Manning White spent months watching, looking at the decisions that this wire editor, who he gave the, the pseudonym Mr. Gates to, looking at how Mr. Gates made decisions about what counted as news and what didn't. Okay, fast forward 70 years. There are, of course, still editors at uh, news organizations all over the country making decisions. But increasingly, in terms of the news that we see every day, we're seeing it on platforms like Facebook, or we're finding it through things like to Google's news aggregator. Mm-hmm. There isn't a Mr. Gates per se anymore. What we have now is our algorithms. Algorithms as these, you know, basically computer programs, sets of procedures that find a solution to a problem. When I ask for news about, you know, rabbits gone wild, what does Google tell me is, is the most relevant thing, right? Now, the thing about these algorithms is that they're proprietary meaning that the companies that created them, be it Facebook or Google, claim that they have exclusive rights to them, which means, in effect, that there can be no equivalent of a David Manning White observing and reporting the decisions made by a Mr. Gates. The algorithms are not, vol- are not available to public scrutiny. Mm-hmm. And so when we talk about, so I think one of the ways we can talk about a kind of algorithmic censorship, or at least an algorithmic filtering of the news, if you want to start from a more neutral standpoint, that's a relatively new development in news that we, I think you're quite right. I think in the last five to six years, there's been a lot more awareness of that. We've had the development of the Cambridge Analytica uh, scandal, you know, the publicizing of that. There's a lot more kind of awareness on many people's parts about how social media function as ways of monetizing our attention. Um, Mm -hmm. But we still don't know, in part because it's impossible right now to know the full extent of how these algorithms are filtering what we receive as news when we're operating in a platform like Google or Facebook. Yeah. And I don't want to get too philosophical and spun out about this, but I'm really curious what you were talking about with your sociology lens in studying this both the corporatization of media and now the addition of artificial intelligence on top of that, how does that, I mean, is that still people 
I mean, people, individual people who are mostly of a certain demographic being white, young American men built these algorithms and run these corporations. But what does that mean for your kind of theoretical framework as a sociologist? Like, are these not human systems anymore? Well, I think they are. I mean, I think that the, one of the kind of one of the smoke screens there is that, and in some sense, I'm guilty of it in what I, uh, in my previous statement, we'll talk about the algorithms or we'll talk about AI, artificial intelligence. But of course, those are all originally human creations, right? They're specific people. We don't know much about, say, the Google News aggregator algorithm, the algorithm that the Google News platform uses to determine what what news you receive. We don't know a lot about how it operates because it's proprietary, but it wasn't, it, you know, it, it was created by a group of people. And so I think it just, it just is a new version of an old problem, which is understanding how, uh, thinking about it sociologically and, his, and, and kind of across historical periods. It's a new version of an old problem, which is how does the news that we receive get produced? Mm-hmm. Right. And in this case, now we've added an intermediary step that is, in effect, non-human. It's technological. But that technology was created by humans. And, you know, I think there are developments afoot that it's possible that we might one day know much more about the manufacture of these things. But for the time being, what we do know is that these algorithms produce biased results and there seems to be. This is always the problem if you're thinking sociologically and you're trying to make a causal argument. X, you know, condition X leads to outcome Y. We know that we know, for instance, that the Google News algorithm is biased. One example I'll just mention briefly. uh, My colleague April Anderson and I earlier this year published an article, a brief article in the Index on Censorship about the censorship of LGBTQ issues, perspectives, and voices online on a variety of platforms. And one of our, one of our arguments and one of the bits of evidence in our argument about that is that the Google News aggregator is significantly biased in terms of what it returns to you as the top news stories of the day if you do a search on LGBT and any of the variants of that acronym. Hmm. And so we know on one hand that there is bias in the Google News aggregator when it comes, for instance, to giving you a representative sampling of the news of the day in terms of LGBTQ issues. On the other hand, we we also know as a kind of empirical point of, of fact, as you've noted, that the people who work at these companies and operate on these companies are not representative of the population as a whole, right? Mm-hmm. They, they they are, you know, predominantly younger, well-educated, white cisgender, likely heterosexual men, and they carry with them all the, you know, potentially carry with them all the the biases recognized or unrecognized of those categorical identities. Now, the trick is, I think sociologically, is so we have one set of conditions on the production side that we know about as a matter of fact. We have another set of conditions on the output side, right, the content that results, the question is what's going on between the conditions that give rise to the outcome and the outcome, right? How, and we, so we don't know. One of the things April Anderson and I say, one of the things we acknowledge in the Index on Censorship article about bias in Google's news aggregator, anti-LGBTQ bias in Google's news aggregator is 
because of the proprietary nature of the algorithms, we don't know whether there are biases built into the algorithm itself or whether those biases are the result of skillful manipulation by people who are homophobic or transphobic to make sure that their items come up far more frequently in Google News Aggregator than messages and perspectives that are, are positive with regard to LGBTQ issues in the community. Yeah. And and I think the issue of the the lack of popular understanding of how this works, not only because of ignorance, but because we literally just don't have access to it. And, you know, some people have leaked things about the Facebook algorithm. There's been a few notable, you know, whistleblowers within Facebook. But these last hearings that we've seen, one being antitrust, so it really wasn't, it was supposed to be focused on that. But just watching representatives in government question these CEOs who are ultimately, you know, responsible for the actions of their companies, it really revealed, I think, to many people, the extent to which folks in government don't understand this technology based on the questions they were asking, or, you know, they are feigning a lack of understanding because they have a a corporate interest in maintaining the power of these companies. Uh But how do you think, how do you think we can get at more transparency from these companies or control over these platforms by a more democratic? Yeah, I would answer that. I guess I would answer that in two ways in terms of working within the conditions that exist now and then working towards conditions that would be better than they are now. So on the first, within the existing conditions, I think something like what Project Censor champions, a kind of critical media literacy, and if my colleague April Anderson were in this conversation with us too, I know April would immediately add in, that includes being in effect algorithmically literate, right? Mm -hmm. So understanding that when you go to your Facebook feed, right, that something is making a decision about what posts you see. And some of that has to do with sponsored content, and some of that has to do with your network of Facebook connections. But but those are being targeted to you in ways we understand a little bit now, right? We've gotten kind of glimpses inside this, this hidden mechanism, right? Mm-hmm. But the more we can understand that and the more we're aware that there is a filtering process going on now, it just no longer consists of a Mr. Gates sitting at a desk deciding this is news, that isn't news, right? It's, it's more, much more sophisticated and distributed now. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's, so I think that's one thing. It's the critical media literacy, which includes an understanding of how algorithms are increasingly powerful in shaping our lives and indeed our life chances, right? There's great work on this with regard to race by Sophia Omoji Noble, whose book Algorithms of Oppression is really important. And April Anderson, my colleague, is working on research that I think is going to eventually be the same kind of feature length study in terms of algorithms and LGBTQ inequalities and exclusions. Um, so that's it. So that's, I think, one thing. The other thing that April and I learned about when we wrote this article, Queer Erasure for Index on Censorship, one of the people that we talked to to prepare this article is a lawyer from the San Francisco Bay Area named Peter Opstler. And Peter Opstler was an interesting person for us to talk to because he's the He's the lawyer representing a group of LGBTQ YouTube content creators on YouTube. 
And this group of people is suing YouTube on the grounds that YouTube has restricted their access uh, on the basis of their sexual orientations or gender identities. And they've identified as a set of toolkits that YouTube has effectively used to do this that includes things like content blocking, uh, restrictions on advertisements, and channel demonetization. This lawsuit, if it goes through, the stakes are huge. It's, it's in some ways far bigger than the very important interests of the plaintiffs themselves. What they're going after in this case would be a public disclosure or a semi-public disclosure of the algorithms that are used to determine the content. And so when I talk about a vision of like what might be different in the future, whether it's through legal means or whether it's through whistleblowers and other figures, uh, I think as we come to learn more about these, we will, we will have, a, again, a better understanding of this core issue of what are the social factors that shape the news we receive today, right? Mm-hmm. Just to, you know, I kind of want to get off the tech companies in a minute, but the, the idea that there's not a, a Mr. Gates now, I think is true. And also one of the stories in the book is about police officers being, the headline is police officers implicated in online hate groups as Facebook profits. And I think mm-hmm. that as Facebook profits is like a thesis for a lot of what has happened in <laughs> in the hatosphere online. Um, uh-huh. The issue isn't, the issue is what we do know about their algorithm is that controversy drives engagement and controversial mm-hmm. content has you know, spawned a gigantic dangerous cult and among other outcomes. So, I mean, and do you think that we could see it that way in that Mark Zuckerberg as Mr. Gates in this example, in that like he just wants Facebook to be the most powerful company in the world and he wants to be a tech emperor, you know, like that it's that it's kind of a value neutral thing mm-hmm. and that the expectation that somehow these tech CEOs are going to be ethical arbiters of information. It's just kind of a strange idea. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's my, I guess it's my, I I would frame it as my personal opinion and therefore something that I couldn't prove in the same way that, you know, I can tell you, we know for a fact that the Google news aggregator discriminates against LGBTQ content. I would put it as a personal opinion. It's my opinion that Zuckerberg is simply in way over his head that he's created, he's created something that he doesn't, understand the full power and implications of it. And, you know, I won't go more into that. I don't think at some level, I don't think it matters what Zuckerberg Mm -hmm. does or doesn't understand. I think what matters is that Facebook as an entity, Facebook as a corporation, right, is driven by market logic. And so, you know, going referring back to that story, the police officers implicated in online hate groups as Facebook profits. It's one of our top 25 most important but underreported stories for the past year. Um, one element of that story is a report from Sludge by Alex Koch from September of, of last year that Facebook has profited from promoting hate groups' contents. And he, the sledge study of Facebook ad data, which is available, found that between May of 2018 and September of 2019, there were 38 hate groups or hate figures or political campaigns representing those figures or groups 
that had paid Facebook $1.6 million to place more than 4,900 sponsored ads. So that is uh, like a straightforward, like that's not behind uh, any kind of proprietary screen, right? With the right kind of freedom of information requests and investigative reporting, you know, Koch was able to document that as a matter of fact. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, again, I think there's, uh, you know, these organizations operate in market contexts where they are compelled to pursue profits And I think the challenge that I'm not sure if the Congress is up to the challenge is making a determination about what is the status of an entity like Facebook, right? Mm -hmm. And I don't have, I don't have, I think, any deep insights into that debate other than that, that the debate over whether Facebook is simply a tech company or whether they perform something like a journalistic role and therefore are responsible to some of the journalistic standards and ethics that we know and hold dear, that debate is important, but it hasn't been played out very effectively, I would say. Yeah, and it's complicating the the next thing I wanted to talk about, which is the issue of, of fake news. And I think that that's the lens through which many Americans who don't pay attention to, you know, media theory recreationally that was their gateway into understanding this more but also this issue you know the exact thing you just mentioned like what what are these companies what's their role i think if we can't slow down and solve that it's going to be very complicated because as fake news became buzzy and as certain figures started being deplatformed and demonetized um on the left and the right kind of across the spectrum the the corporate media's gatekeeping became more formal and i want to share a quote from uh from it's from matt taibbi's intro to the new Mm -hmm. book talking Mm -hmm. about fake news and this idea of who checks the fact checkers so he said even more alarming perhaps in a may 2020 here to help feature on recognizing false information in online feeds the new york times audaciously advised its readers that if they have never heard of the outlet that published an article quote there's a good chance that it exists solely to publish fake news end quote the feature further advised that if a questionable story's contents were quote legitimately outrageous then quote plenty of other news outlets would have written about it too end quote so <laughs> that's troubling and <laughs> and, that, and that's the and that's from the new york times right yes. and so you know the interesting thing about that story that that new york times here to help feature when that came out i clipped a copy of it from the, the actual print version of the paper and thought uh you know i i do that sometimes so i want to remind myself hey this this is something you know, tuck this away for use in the, in the next censored yearbook. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I usually assume it's there to remind me until I can find it online. And, and then they just, you know, it's a matter of bookmarking it online on my, on my browser and I can find it whenever I want. That article never appeared online. Um, mm. I wonder if the New York Times didn't get some flack in addition to what's in our yearbook about the poor judgment demonstrated there. But I think, you know, thinking back, you know, if we're thinking about today versus 2015, right, let's step back and take a bigger picture at fake news. Like there's always been concern for fake news, right? Throughout history, kind of fake news has been influential and dangerous force. Uh, But the difference between today and 2015 is that in those five years, fake news has been weaponized primarily by President Trump 
it's been weaponized as a tool, right? Trump has infamously used it to dismiss not just particular stories that he disagrees with, but to, to but to discredit reporters and entire uh, news organizations as fake news. And that I think is behind. That's what's driven some of the kind of enhanced status of our concern for fake news today. And, and I think there are a couple things to say about that. One is like, it's always been a problem. And in some sense, for those of us at Project Censored and those who have followed the project's work, it's like, oh, finally, a bunch more people are coming around to see the significance, the importance of understanding some of the things that we've been talking about for 40 some years, right? So mm -hmm. there's that level. The other thing that, and we write about, uh, Mickey Huff and I write about this a little bit in the introduction to uh, State of the Free Press 2021, the new Project Censored Yearbook, is that many of the current proposals to address fake news are originating from the very people and organizations that have helped to produce and spread it in the first place, right? Mm -hmm. So whether we're talking about government agencies or officials, private industry, the tech companies we've been talking about, or political parties, right? Some of the very people who are now, very people in organizations who are now keen to present themselves as arbiters of what counts as real news and what we need to be, you know, censoring as fake news are themselves, you know, it's a bit of the, um, you know, don't throw bricks when you live in a glass house. Um, so to take one concrete example, NewsGuard is one of the kind of entities that has risen and been embraced by much of the corporate media as a sort of trustworthy judge of fake news. But if you dig a little, as Mickey Huff and I write about in the introduction to State of the Free Press 2021, if you dig a little, what you find is that the advisory board for NewsGuard consists of a bunch of former government officials who very tidily fit kind of the establishment news media's standard but very narrow definition of who's a newsworthy actor or who's a newsworthy source of perspective on the day's events. So these are people like Tom Ridge, who's the first director of Homeland Security for the, uh, for the United States. So he's one of the advisory figures on uh, the NewsGuard advisory board. Another is Michael Hayden, who ran the CIA when George W. Bush was the president. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, so you look at this as kind of like wolves guarding the hen house here, right? Mm -hmm. um, if we answer like who checks the facts checkers, well, uh, these are people who I think any media literate person, any kind of critical thinker might say, wait a minute, these people are not disinterested parties who are just interested in providing a kind of good, clear, transparent, trustworthy news to us. These are people who have serious ties and investments in the status quo power structures of this country. So that the idea that they're the ones who are going to judge what is fake news or not is to me inherently ideological. And like ultimately, like I think NewsGuard is in some ways, although the aim of what they're trying to do is noble, the way they're doing it, I think, amounts to kind of more black smoke. It's more it's more smog that distorts our understanding of uh, that distorts our clear vision of what's actually going on. Yeah. Yeah. And this whole process would seem to create a really troubling feedback loop in which whether it's the the CIA folks being in control of NewsGuard or whether it's just the general like smug tone of The New York Times 
the people who are supposed, you know, the people who are being duped by fake news are going to see that and be like, well, look, the New York Times is doesn't care about me or, you know, these people are, you know, it is all a conspiracy. And rather than gaining the critical thinking skills and the news analysis skills you were talking about, and I hope we'll talk about more, mm-hmm. people just might go further down a rabbit hole of, you know, whether it's conspiracy theory, like whole cloth lies or just like odd distortions of real information. Yeah. I mean, I think this is a good time to just, uh, I'll put in a shameless plug here for a new book that's not the Censored Year book, but is a book by a close ally of Project Censored, Nolan Higdon, who published earlier this year a book called The Anatomy of Fake News. But the subtitle is wonderful. And it's wonderful because this is what the book does. It's a critical news literacy education. And so the last chapter of the book, after Nolan deftly takes uh, the reader through a history of fake news. And as I mentioned earlier, all the ways that across kind of, you know, American history, governments, private industry, political parties and others have tried to tried to, you know, dupe the public um, in one way or another. Nolan's book, The Anatomy of Fake News, ends with a 10 point fake news detection kit. And he, the point he makes is that this is about, uh, it's a point he makes based on work by another colleague of ours, Allison Butler, who makes the point that we have to reframe our sense of who we are, right? We tend to think, and the language we often use is that we're consumers of media, right? Kind of like, and I think that 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 consuming metaphor is very powerful in lots of ways, because I think our health as people depends on the news we consume much the way it depends on the food we consume. But Alison Butler, in his book, Anatomy of Fake News, Nolan Higdon, argued that we need to think of ourselves not as media consumers, but as media citizens, right? And so when we are confronted with news that seems incredible, right, in the literal sense of that term, news that might not be credible, news that we might, you know, want to label fake news, you know, some of the things that we can do are ask ourselves, you know, should I react to this? Or should I investigate it further? Mm-hmm. Ask yourself, why was my attention drawn to this story, right? If you're getting worked up about it, what made that happen? And then, you know, the list gradually becomes more analytic, I think. And some of Nolan's recommendations are, does the evidence hold up under scrutiny, right? So once we've, you know, noted our reactions, you can start looking for the things that basic critical thinking skills alert us to, you know, false dilemmas, circular reasoning, ad hominem and straw man uh, arguments. And I'm not going to try to go through the whole uh, 10 point detection kit now, but just one more that I really think is brilliant is what's missing from the story, right? And in some ways, that's where Project Censors work comes in. And I think that's a fundamental question that people interested in news should always be asking is like, okay, if the if this story frames this issue for me this way, and I'm thinking of a frame, I'm holding up my hands as I'm saying this, like like the frame of a window, right? If this news story frames this story this way, it's highlighting some things, right? The things in the middle of the frame, but there are things outside the frame that may be important too, right? And so asking what's missing from the story, what's outside the frame, though of course that hinges on recognizing there's a frame in the first place. Uh, but I think those are sort of critical things that in a general way begin to orient us and give us a firm ground from which to assess, should I trust this story or not? 
Yeah. And that, so that idea of the frame, the what's missing question is so crucial, you know, and that kind of goes to this idea that I love now that I've read it from your other former director, Peter Phillips, this idea of news abuse. And Mm -hmm. I might just actually read the way it's described in the book, if that's okay, because it will be more eloquent than me. News abuse is a term coined nearly 20 years ago by former Project Censored director, sociologist Peter Phillips, who saw that it was important to understand how corporate media not only ignore crucial stories, but spin and frame news in ways that distract, distort, and sensationalize reporting. In addition, by employing interpretive frames, media serve to present familiar narratives that fit seamlessly into official establishment positions that shape and alter the significance of global events. Phillips understood that without historical context, crucial perspectives, or meaningful follow-up reporting, corporate news produced a subtle yet sophisticated form of propaganda, and he called the practice news abuse. So I want to talk about that just a little more with you. I've been particularly aware of it during election season, which is just a Mm -hmm. time that I hate as someone who's (laughs) interested in like social movement politics and kind of broader politics. And I've been also listening to like the New York Times Daily podcast, things outside of my normal media diet, just to see what's going on out there. And the news abuse is is real in the election, you know. Uh, I don't know. I guess I'm just curious your observations on that. The weird amnesia that seems to be part of it, the same hand-wringing about how could the polls be so wrong. It's Mm -hmm. just regurgitated. Yeah. I think, I think, yeah, so that's a rich, rich topic that we could probably do a whole, a whole interview on. So I'll try to hit a few highlights and then point people to where they can learn a bit more about this if they are interested. I think if we're talking about news abuse as, as part of this framing process, right, and how the frame can, can take a serious issue and distort its significance in a way that undermines uh, the public's ability to understand and ultimately to engage effectively. I think one of the things that's just fundamental, and, and this isn't original to me by any means, but the critique of news coverage of elections as horse race coverage, right? Mm-hmm. Where, where the coverage of the campaign for any elected official, especially presidents in this country, is a matter of who's ahead and by how much, right? So it's like a horse race. So-and-so is winning, but their lead is shrinking, right? And so the news becomes the election itself rather than the issues that the election is supposedly a, a referendum on. That's a kind of generic point, and I think that is a frame that often leads to kind of news abuse in in the sense that Peter Phillips first conceived it. Thinking about the, if we go back from the recently completed and still, you know, we're still in the, the rough wake of the presidential election, but if we go back to the primaries, the uh, Robin Anderson, who's a professor of communications and media studies at Fordham University in New York, wrote this year's chapter on news abuse in the State of the Free Press 2021 book. And one of the things, one of the topics that Robin deftly analyzes as a, an exemplar of news abuse is the coverage of Bernie Sanders' presidential campaign in the Democratic primary. And and just think, I'll just point to this and then say, if you, if this is interesting, you know, you might want to check out Robin Anderson's analysis in, in the book. But just think for a minute about how notions of electability, how electability became the frame by which the news media proposed, the news media and pundits all across the spectrum began proposing that we evaluate candidates, 
Now, of course, winning uh, you know uh, elections like horse races are about you know who gets there first with the most. But the notion that that concept of electability, I think, was a real, uh, was a new development in the kind of in this year's campaign cycle, um, and I think it it worked in ways as as Robin Anderson analyzes. It worked in ways that amounted to what you could think of as news abuse. Because mm-hmm. right? one That's, would think that in a primary, the determinant of electability would be allowing people to vote between the maximum amount of folks in the primary. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right. Right. And so, and so, but just that concept of electability, mm-hmm. right. As a frame, right. Think of it as, of course, elections are about, you know, winning and getting the most votes, but the way that concept electability worked, I think is, is, is the, is the crux, right. Or is a crux mm-hmm. of issue. Yeah. But in general, you know, it's important to point out just for context for people who may not be as familiar with Project Censored's work, that news abuse is kind of the twin concept of another concept that the project championed, that Carl Jensen, the founder of Project Censored, actually coined the term junk food news. And junk food news stories as a kind of, and and news abuse are sort of twins in the sense that junk food news stories are the stories that the corporate media spin off and wow us with where the stories are truly frivolous. They don't inform us or engage us as citizens or community members. So things like what celebrities are doing during quarantine and the pandemic are quintessential junk food news stories, as as we have analysis of in the book um, in a chapter by Izzy Snow and Susan Raman and students at the College of Marin in California. And so then news abuse is sort of the counterpart it's stories that are genuinely important, but the way they're reported, the way they're framed distorts our understanding. And I think, you know, there's a lot of evidence to show, for instance, in these times did a really fascinating study during the, during the Democratic primary to show how much more coverage Biden got than Sanders or, or um, Warren got as evidence of kind of a corporate bias in the coverage, you know, so it's not just that they're covering it as a horse race, but they're covering it as a, a rigged horse race, right? Or a horse race that they've had a hand in rigging. Um, yeah. yeah. I want to say that the number from, because it's cited in in the book as well, I want to say that the number was, it was three to one coverage. Yeah, yeah. so that's a stunning Sanders. And then yeah. when you add the frame that that Sanders coverage was probably hemming and hawing about whether he's, his electability. Too radical, et cetera. Yeah. So aside from that, I mean, you talked about this a bit, but I'm curious about the process. Um, Mm -hmm. I think all the fake news talk and especially coming from Trump, you know, demonizing journalists, the ways that the media is kind of obfuscated for a lot of people not knowing what the process is. Can you talk a little bit about the process that the students who are part of Project Censored, the rest of the team, use to vet your stories, to find your stories, and how might that trickle out to average people kind of doing their own seeking of reliable sources? Yeah, I think that I think that there's uh, the re- review vetting process is definitely translatable, uh, adaptable to people just sitting at home and thinking about it, because the foundation of it is ultimately, we use a little bit of technology, we use some online databases, but most of it is critical thinking skills. So the, just to kind of background, the top 25 list comes is the result of an annual year-long process. 
this year some over 300 students from 19 different college and university campuses helped us identify and vet candidate stories resulting in this year's top 25 list. For people who are interested in some of the stories that we vetted positively, that we found to be important and well-reported, but that aren't in the top 25, um, you can go to the Project Censored website, which is projectcensored.org, and look for validated independent news. And there are several hundred stories. Each year, we post several hundred stories there. When we vet those stories, obviously, we're looking for the stories need to be important, the stories, uh, so they can't be, you know, frivolous stories. They need to be well-reported, which is to say they're transparently sourced and factually grounded. And they, to, for stories that make the top 25 list, they need to be stories that have not been adequately covered in the corporate news media. So thinking about how those things translate, I would say there are a few things that people can do. This is something I love having students in my sociology courses do. We take a news story and we look at who's quoted in the story. And to get to the big picture, right, look at who's quoted with the idea that the question, the question of the quality of the news hinges in some, to some degree on the diversity of perspectives represented. Mm-hmm. Right. So if you look at a news story and see, and I'll give an example here in a moment, and you see that a very narrow range of people and perspectives are quoted, that news story is, in my opinion, weaker, less useful, less informative than a story that looks at the same issue, but quotes sources from a wider range of perspectives. Let me give an example from the top 25 list in this year's book. One of our top stories is how Monsanto um, created an intelligence center that it used to target journalists and activists who had been critical of Monsanto and especially its Roundup project, uh, Roundup product that uses glyphosate. Sorry, I'm stumbling on my words here. No, you got it. that story was, a, as we report it, was originally uh, reported in, by The Guardian in August of 2019. But as students who were looking at that story vetted it, they found there had been very limited corporate news coverage. But one of the stories they found, an ABC News story from June of 2019, was very interesting on this issue of who's quoted. ABC's coverage of the Monsanto Intelligence Center basically emphasized the perspective of Monsanto and its parent company, Bayer. ABC quoted only Bayer officials, including the company's head of corporate communications and its chairman of the board. And the only person who wasn't a Bayer official quoted in that art in ABC's report on the intelligence centers was a statement by from the PR firm Fleischmann Hillard that represents Monsanto, that basically said, look, Monsanto is not doing anything different than what every other corporation in the world does. So on one hand, you could say, well, hey, wait a minute, guys at Project Censored, there was corporate news coverage of that story. But this kind of gets at two things. It gets at what's missing from the story. If you if you just read, there come the Monsanto Intelligence Center people to get us. I hear the siren. Um, uh, if you just look at the ABC coverage, and that was your sole source of information about Monsanto and its intelligence center, you might conclude, hey, it's standard practice. Everyone does it. You know, corporations are always monitoring for security risks to their uh, work. No harm, no foul. Right. 
But if you saw other articles that quoted other sources, as Sam Levine's article in The Guardian did, then you would get the perspective of people like Dave Moss from the Electronic Frontier Foundation, who, when he's quoted in the article about this, says what Monsanto is doing is going way beyond standard security practices. They're actively targeting and making plans to undermine the credibility of people who have spoken out about problems with Roundup. And, and so there's a very different perspective there. So you can look at who's quoted, right? A question of diversity of perspectives. Is there a range of perspectives? If it's a civil liberties issue, are only government officials quoted, mm-hmm. right? And so one way, I think one way that you often get a false sense of diversity of perspective in the news is the, an article will say on use of weaponized drones in other countries, uh, U.S. weaponized drones, an article might quote both a Republican and a Democrat. And that looks like perspective, right? Hey, we've got a liberal view and a conservative view, and they both seem to say like, well, you know, some of the technology, the ethics are still catching up to the technology, but overall this is better than, than the loss of lives involved in boots on the ground. Mm-hmm. You can say, okay, well, diversity of perspective, right? We've got a Republican and a Democrat. But both of them are, say, taking money from the lobbying of corporations that produce drones. Mm -hmm. So is that really diversity of perspective? It looks like it if you only focused on political affiliation, political party affiliation. But if you think about it in other ways, it's not. So I think looking looking at who's quoted, and I love, it's a very simple concept, but it's a very powerful one. The sociologist Herb Gans in 1979 wrote a book called Deciding What's News, and he studied for months and months. He studied the newsrooms of, uh, of some of the biggest news magazines, newspapers, and network news outlets. And he concluded by saying, what we need is multi-perspectival news, right? The ways in which news is biased can often be tracked back to a lack of multiple perspectives. So um, I think about, like, look at who's quoted in a story and ask yourself, is this multi-perspectival? Right. You don't have to read Gans's study to do that. And even even if you can't find a direct source of someone whose family was killed by a drone strike in Yemen, which you can find. But, you know, you can at least imagine like, oh, that's who we're not hearing from. Mm-hmm. Or the or the, right. exactly. the, the 19 year old kid from Iowa who's piloting these drones, you know, any of the other people involved. Right. So those would be instances of like if you had a perspective of, of, of a person in that role the news story would be more robust, I think. The news story would provide uh, something closer to a multi-perspectival view on that, on that issue. Another great example, and I won't go into detail on this, but at the outset of, in 2003, before the United States began to attack Iraq, Dar Jamal, who had no background as a reporter, decided he needed to get there on the ground to find out what was gonna happen. And unlike all these other reporters who were embedded with U.S. military units, Darjamal went there on his own. He hired a driver and a translator, and he went and talked to ordinary people. The guy who owns the shop on the corner, the mother uh, of the children who are playing in the courtyard. And the reports that Dar sent back from Iraq, from Baghdad in early 2003, were so radically different from anything that was anywhere in the kind of establishment media at the time. And it was all because, you know, at risk to his life, 
Taj Mahal had gone and and created kind of provided multi-perspectival news on what the invasion, what the bombing and invasion of Iraq looked like at the ground level. Yeah, I was able to talk to him uh, last year, and now he's doing really wonderful, in-depth, independent climate work. Yes, too. He's. I mean, he's continued to just be. He's a person who I think of as an exemplar of what it means mm-hmm. to be an independent in- investigative reporter. Yeah. And he's just a, a really good person, too. Yeah, this is probably a good time for me to mention, too, for folks listening, that I'm linking every everything that's been dropped throughout this conversation in the show notes underneath. So if you've been trying to, like, scramble to write things down on scraps of paper or whatever, don't put it in your notes app while you're driving. It's in the show notes, so... A couple more lessons that I think from the vetting process that can that can be translated directly to to folks who want to for folks who want to kind of feel like they're more proactive, like they're media citizens rather than passive media consumers. Track data back to the original source, right? So track back to the you know if someone if a news story says, oh well, you know a report found X. Oftentimes, you know, if you're reading online, there will be a hyperlink right there that you can follow. Maybe there's not, though. And then you can but you can still be a little more proactive. And, you know, this is a wonderful age in which to be a critical consumer of news, because if you have an Internet connection, you can dig pretty hard without, you know, without wearing wearing off the soles of your shoes, mm-hmm. walking all over to places to find things. So tracking back to the original sources, we have students do that all the time as an elementary component of their evaluation of the, of the trustworthiness of the story. Does the reporter accurately convey what the original source reported? And the last one that I would add, just in terms of not trying to overwhelm people now, but one that I think is incredibly important, and you can think of the Monsanto Intelligence Center um, story as an example of this, compare different stories on the same topic, right? It can be hard to see slant in isolation. It can be hard to see whatever you want to call it, slant, bias, you know, news abuse. It can be hard to see it in isolation, Pretty much any story that you read in the New York Times is going to be incredibly well written. And it is going to be, to to a great degree, factually documented. But we're back to the question that we were talking about earlier of the framing, Mm -hmm. right? And the framing will be easier to see if you compare, say, the New York Times coverage of that story with something from, say, Mother Jones on the same topic. Or I'm I'm picking examples, not totally at random here, but I don't mean to put Mother Jones on a pedestal and the New York Times in the doghouse but just as exemplars of corporate and independent news reporting. And if you look at stories side by side, then it becomes easier to see, for instance, wow, there's a real difference between who's quoted in this story and who's quoted in that story. Or you can see, for instance, that the New York Times reported about how journalists around the world are at risk for doing their work because they're increasingly, and this has been magnified under um, COVID, right, attacks on journalistic freedom in the United States. But you won't appreciate the fullness of that story until you compare the New York Times coverage with, say, some independent coverage that not only reports how journalists around the world are under attack, but also a potential solution, which is, and this is this was one of our top 25 stories a handful of years ago. A student of mine researched this story, and we ultimately ran that story after the student had thought for a minute that it might be it might be in effect for the top 25 contest a dead story because it had been covered in the New York Times. But when the student looked more closely, 
what she found was, oh, the New York Times didn't talk at all about some of the solutions that were in the works in terms of, of mechanisms through international agencies to hold governments accountable when journalists in their country were subject to jail or violence in the line of work. And so the New York Times reported on the dangers that journalists face, but left out a crucial component of the story, mechanisms that might lead to, to you know, if not a complete solution to that problem, at least to a reduction, a mitigation of the risks that journalists face in the line of doing their work. Mm-hmm. So that was a case where comparing the story revealed crucial differences between the two, between the coverage provided by a corporate news outlet and an independent news outlet. Just in the service of winding down, I'm, I feel like there's so much stuff we could just keep talking about forever, but I'm curious, this is kind of a fluffy question, but also not since the book is, we should mention that the book is coming out tomorrow. If you're listening on the release date, it's coming out December 1st, 2020. You can find it. You can request it at your indie bookseller or go to projectcensor.org, I believe are the best ways. But do you have a favorite story? Do you have like a story from this year's yearbook that you want to highlight a darling, that you haven't? A darling, a darling a, yes. A darling story. Yeah, I do. I, I have several darlings. One of our very top stories and something that I I feel very strongly about. So it's not my favorite in terms of uh, I'm happy about this. But uh, one of our very top stories uh, that I'm very proud that Project Censored and our judges voted to make this one of our very, very top stories is the story of missing and murdered indigenous women and girls in the United States. And that story is, uh, I think it's just very important. And it's one that in a year where we've had a lot of concern about violence in this country, it's a story that nonetheless has been very marginal in terms of the corporate news media's attention. And I think that there's a lot that we can learn from digging into the details of that story about how the news media work, but also there's, I think, a tremendous sense of how how far we have to go to to heal longstanding wounds of of systemic racial inequality and violence in this country. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one I would point to, but I don't want to end on a I don't want to end on a such a hard note. I think the other thing that I would say is that, you know, the importance of positive news stories. And I want, you know, we have a handful of those in this year's top 25 list and all people can find that list. Even if you don't get hold of the book, you can find the top 25 list will be published on the Project Censored website and you can look at the list for positive news stories. And I think that's an area where it's another area where there's serious bias in terms of corporate news coverage, a bias against covering substantively positive news stories. And by that, I don't mean like the cat trapped at the top of the tree that gets rescued by the firefighters who come. Yeah. Um, but I mean, positive news stories, stories of communities coming together in solidarity to solve problems that they face. And I would here point people, actually, this is part of what Project Censored does. We point people to other people's work. And I would say that for people who sometimes feel bummed out about the news and that the news is hard to accept or hard to digest because so much of it is so negative, the Solutions Journalism Network is a fantastic organization. And they have online the Solutions Story Tracker, which allows you to browse by substantive area 
issue areas and success factors. You can browse for stories that are positive news stories, that are high quality news stories. They fit all the criteria that we talk about. Um, and they and you know they don't necessarily discriminate as Project Censored does between independent and corporate news. But they're for people who want a more positive kind of stream of news, who sometimes feel like you know you get burnt out on the relentless negative news. The Solution Story Tracker, and then some of the stories that we each year we work with our judges to. We don't massage the results of the voting, but we try to encourage the judges to to not only look at the stories that sort of make us go, "Oh my God," uh-huh. um, but also the stories that, that where you go, "Yeah, that's right." bring it. And so, yeah, those are, I think, important stories um, as well, right? That they're important because they show us alternative models about what's possible. Um, And that's very important if you want, as I think we all do, a a better, more inclusive, uh, more just future. I always try to get people to end on a a hopeful note without being trite, and you just kind of did it on your own. So well done. Before we wrap up, is there anything you want to make sure to add? And are there any plugs you want to plug that we haven't hit? I think, you know, people can find, find as you mentioned, State of the Free Press 2021 from Project Censored at the Project Censored website at in independent bookstores. We love it when people ask for or find our book in an independent bookstore. And you can get it direct from our, our stalwart publisher, the Independent Seven Stories Press out of New York City. Can go to their website and find it too. Um, we're super proud of the book. The book is a labor of love. And and the last thing I would say, Taylor, is just thanks so much for the work that you do. It's this kind of grassroots, you know, journalism and and public affairs programming that I think that we need more and more of. That I pe- I think people are super hungry for. And uh, so thank you. It's uh, it's a pleasure to spend time in conversation with you. And uh, folks, folks who listen to your show, I hope they think about reaching out and expressing your thanks. You if this kind of if this kind of programming enriches your understanding or stirs your fire. You know, this is it's it's crucial work, I believe. And, I, and it's this kind of work that gives me hope for, as I was saying a moment ago, a better future, a more inclusive, more just uh, future. Well, shucks. Thanks. I feel the same about you guys. So, yeah, I'm so glad we were able to talk and to talk for this long. Yeah. Thank you very much, Taylor. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks again to Andy and Mickey and everyone at Project Censored for doing this important work to interrogate and demystify the systems and people that bring us the information that informs our action. And thanks to you all for listening. Again, everything we mentioned and referenced in the interview is below in the show notes, along with a transcript of the episode. Please do subscribe, support, share with a friend, and feel free to contact me with show ideas and questions. You can do all of that by going to praxisradio.com, that's P-R-A-X-I-S-R-A-D-I-O, and clicking on Praxis. Next week, we head further out, following a lead from a past guest to a wonderful interview and visiting a variety of visionary alternative spaces and projects found along the way. See you then. <laughs>